You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with L.J. Harrison. He marched alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1960s in Atlanta, and after graduating from college, he taught history in Stevens County and elsewhere. And after being elected, he served for five years on the Toccoa City Commission and as mayor of Toccoa for a year. Today, we'll speak with him about the movement, the importance of teaching history, and Lillian Smith. Thank you for joining me today, Mr. Harrison. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited. Um, Marie Cochran, of course, got us introduced to one another, and she's told me a lot about you. And I talked to you before we kind of did this, and you talked about the movement. So, I mean, that's where we have to start, because you went to Morehouse, right? Right. Right. And And Morehouse was the center of the movement. Exactly. So, as you were a student at Morehouse, you participated in the sit-ins and demonstrations in October 1960. Yes. Uh, can you talk some about that and kind of what happened and your participation in them? Well, the participation in Morehouse College was really, uh, I guess, accidental because uh, I had never been involved in any movement before coming from a small town to court. But I got caught up in the movement uh, with Dr. King and, and some of the other leaders. Julian Bunn was a classmate of mine at Morehouse and, and Lonnie King and some of the others that were there at the time, got caught up in the movement and decided to demonstrate. And we demonstrated the purpose was to fill the jails up. But what we thought was going to happen is that uh, they would lock us up and give us our stripes and put us on the streets and we could be seen. But instead, when we got arrested, they took us to the way out in the country on a farm. Nobody could see us. So it was our purpose did not pan out the way it did. But I was arrested on the October 20th, 1960, at the Terminal Train Station, which is now the Richard B. Russell Building in Atlanta on Sage and Mitchell Street. At that time, whites entered the building from Spring Street, main entrance. Blacks had to go down the alley on Mitchell Street and come in the back. But this particular day, we had been demonstrating at the Five and Dime store at Riches and and other places downtown Atlanta. But this particular day, A.D. King, the brother of Dr. King, was our leader. There were 22 of us. So A.D. said, let's go to the train station. So we went out to the train station and entered on Spring Street, the front door. And usually when they saw a group of blacks coming, they would lock the door to keep you out. Or they had this little white rope they would tie across the counter and the seats and uh, close the counter. Lunch kind of down and things like that. But anyway, we got in the lobby and they saw us coming. And the manager saw A.D. coming. And A.D. was able to get in the door. And the guy closed the door on him, but he was able to go ahead and get through the door. Then he locked the door with A.D. on the inside. We were in the lobby. And at that point, Governor Ernest Vanderbilt had signed the antitrust passing law the year before, which said if the management asks you to leave and you don't leave, you can be arrested. So they called the police officer, of course a black police officer, to embarrass us, and we were arrested. That was about 11.30 in the morning. They put us in the, in the, in the paddy wagon, we call it, took us to the courthouse, and our trial started the same day at 1 o'clock. Right. By 1.30, we were convicted and sentenced 
and we in, in prison at that afternoon late. But uh, we had a good lawyer, and uh, his name was Holloway. You probably read about him in some of the reading. Anyway, he asked the arresting officer why he arrested us. And of course, he said because the man didn't ask him to. But he took the law book, and he read the definition for disorderly conduct, disturbing the peace, resisting arrest. All those charges were against us. And he asked the arresting officer if we had committed any of those things. And he said no. So he said, why did you arrest him? So he said to the judge, he said, Judge, Your Honor, said, I move that the charge against my clients be dismissed. And I see the judge today. He took his glasses off. He said, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to overrule you. Said, your parents sent you down here to get an education, not to demonstrate in the street. And I'm going to teach you a lesson. So I'm going to send each of you to 20 days in the state calaboots, which is the, you know, uh, minor offensive. And if you do good, after 10 days, I'll let you out. So they took us away, fingerprinted us, you know, did that picture taking, took us on the calaboots. So we arrived that afternoon in jail about 5 o'clock. And we were there Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday, sometime Sunday morning, Dr. King met with Mayor William B. Hartfield, and they reached an agreement. The agreement was that Dr. King would call off the demonstration, Mayor Hartsfield would drop all the charges against us in jail and let us out, and ask the restaurants in Atlanta to integrate. So that was the deal. So that afternoon we got out, and about 5 o'clock, about six of us that were in my group, we went to the pancake house at Lemon Square, and they'd already prearranged for us to be surged. And uh, we went in, and the waitress sat us down, said, may I take your order, please? And then the next morning came out, Atlanta restaurants integrated without incidents. So that was the first integration publicly in the Atlanta restaurant, October 23, 1960. And you mentioned, too, that the judge said that you came down here for an education, mm-hmm. right? And there was even, with the administration of the colleges, not wanting demonstrations, Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Just like Morehouse was the center, but there was nothing going on at Clark, nothing going on at Spelman, AU Center. They were all quiet and you were real conservative. And with Dr. King being at Morehouse, it was an instigator of us being a leader in that group. So that's why that happened. And, and one thing that's interesting there, which you don't have to get into, but you're talking about not just interracial, but intraracial as well. Right, right. These types we, of discussions. We had a, we had a, they were white, a lot of white people participating in this movement. Jews and, and Quakers and, you know, people who felt like that a man is a man, color should not matter. So we had a lot of support there. So this obviously was a formative kind of moment for you, I'm assuming. It was, right? and it cost me a lot of trouble because so I, I had been working certain places in Tacoa. And I'd worked all the way through high school. I had jobs maybe 15 or 20 places and never lost a job. But when I got arrested in the city movement, the guy who, he would not work me anymore. I lost my job because of that. So here in Tacoa? Yeah. And did, did you go to school initially to be a history teacher? No. My original thing was to be a chemistry and math teacher. <laughs> but then... Like I said, I that sounds to, like... I got to calculus, you know interval of D to the NDV and that type thing. They didn't even offer calculus at my high school. Yeah. 
I was completely lost. So I switched my major from math and chemistry to history in math. I got a mind in math, but a major in history. Did, did your participation in, in the sit-ins and the movement kind of have an effect on that too? Kind of a move No, I did better. Uh, in fact, uh, two, two or three things happened to me after this is I got married in 61 because my wife, we didn't keep house. She went to New York and had a living job, and I went back to uh, Morehouse to finish my degree. Can, 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 you, can you talk about that briefly real quick, about, yes. about her going to New York and having a yes. living job? Uh, my wife and I, we were high school sweethearts for one year in high school, and then we separated, and then my, my senior year in high school and my freshman year in college, I had another girlfriend, but my wife, present-day wife, she went to Payne College for a semester, mm-hmm. and they had these job open in New York that uh, if you want to live in, it makes good pay. They they bought a bus ticket for her, paid her way there. Then she lived with the family, mm-hmm. and she did that for two years. But in between us getting engaged and our marriage, she said, okay, i like one more year in school. You go back to school, I'll keep my job in New York and go back to New York and work, which she did. And then after I graduated, she came home and we started keeping house. But that's how we worked that out. So, so did she work as a live-in domestic? Yeah, live-in domestic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she worked for the Rothenberg on Long Island. And she was there. Well, she had a job before then and it didn't work out, so she switched it. She was there over, a little over two years with the Rothenberg. And they had two small boys. And, he was a lawyer. She was a school teacher, and he worked out real well. And you, you talk about, we mentioned you going into history, and you you were a history teacher. I would still say even though you retired, you're a history teacher. Yeah, still. I mean, once a teacher, always a teacher. Yeah, I know. Um, but you taught to high school students and college students for decades. Mm-hmm. And at the unveiling of a plaque for the Ritz Theater here in Tacoa in 2020, you spoke, um, and you began by quoting Marcus Garvey. Mm-hmm. And you, Marcus Garvey said, a people without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. So can you talk some about the importance of this quote, but also the importance of us knowing history and teaching history factually? Well, it is said that if you don't change, you're likely to repeat your same mistakes. If you make a mistake and don't correct it, you're going to make another mistake. So in looking at the importance of history, I really don't think we have learned from our history as we should have learned because we keep making the same mistakes over and over. What is happening with uh, Amon Aubrey, Emmett Till, those type things should not be taking place. And by the way, while I'm talking, they passed the Emmett Till bill yesterday. President Biden is going to sign it, which is historic. But we shouldn't have to be going through that. But there's still an element in America and that and that and there's been anti-lynching discussions yeah. for legislation for centuries for yeah forever and uh-huh. finally just now, now I don't know if you're familiar with it or not but they had the I think it's in Alabama they've got an anti-lynching museum yeah I, when I was I, I haven't it, been there I want to go I haven't been there so I'm, I taught I taught at Auburn for two years okay. and, and right when I left the EJI the Equal Justice Initiative uh-huh. um, opened the museum and the memorial and and I took my students and. The museum and memorial are both very powerful, and the memorial is for victims of, of lynching, right? Yeah. And one thing that really kind of shocked me when I took students, these are college students, sophomores or higher. There's I have no, no idea what's going well, on. Well, 
Well, that's kind of my point. The importance of history. There, there was an African American student. And we went into the museum. It's a museum from slavery to mass incarceration. Is how is how it is. And they have a. I don't know if it's the original flag or just a replica of the flag that used to hang out of the NAACP building mm-hmm. in New York that said a man was lynched today, right? That flew outside anytime mm-hmm. um, a man or an individual was lynched. And the student came in, right? When we came in, saw that and says, what was a lynching? And I was just like, the, the disconnect of not knowing what, whether or not parents talked about it or whatever, just not knowing exactly what that word is mm-hmm. and what the, the historical connotation of that mm-hmm. word was just kind of gut-wrenching. Especially for for a black male student mm-hmm. from the South. Yeah, it's really it's really a sad commentary. But what I was going to say a moment ago is that we haven't learned from our history because Dr. King, not Dr. King, John F. Kennedy, in his speech on civil rights, he said, "What shall we say? Shall we say that everybody should have these rights except for blacks? Everybody get an education except for blacks?" You know, he went on through that litany of things of saying what is going to happen, except that, and that's when he said, you know, I'm going to send this bill to Congress, which will make the, the rudimentary things available to everybody. And But there are still people in America today that feel like Spanish, Hispanics, Black American, American Indian should not have the rights that white America have. And it's not a lot. I think it would be less than 15%, but you still got that segment that believe that and, and try to carry it out. So that's what's so sad is that is that we are not one nation under God. We're really two nations, as the old saying is, one black, one white, separate and unequal. That quote is still true today, even though I know that we have made lots of progress and I've had opportunities that that most blacks could never be afforded to have. But you still got that segment of what's going on with the psychology and what we need to change. And I don't know if we're going to make it or not. I just don't know. Well, that that was when you were talking, you were mentioning Kennedy's speech about civil rights. And I immediately thought to Frederick Douglass, what to the slave is the 4th of July, uh-huh. which is 1852. Right. I mean, over 100 right. years before he would give that speech, right? right. And the fact that these... If these discussions aren't new, they just they just change. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the the discussion of psychology, and it is Lillian Smith pointed out as a psychosis. And for me, the more I read her and the more I think about it, there's a couple of things I think about. One thing that is powerful about her being as a white reader, um, reading a white woman mm-hmm. talking about these things is knowing that she dealt with it because she looks at herself just as much. Mm-hmm. And the one thing she kind of points out, her and Paula Snelling point out, is that you need to kind of look at yourself in the mirror before anything can happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And then if you're afraid to look at yourself or afraid of what you're going to see, gonna you're not going to do it. Yeah. I think of John Brown and the fact when they brought him in for trial and they charged him with treason, committing murder and all that. He said, so John Brown and Harper's Ferry. Yeah. Right. said, I never intended, you know, for treason or anything like that. He said, all I wanted to do was to free those who were less fortunate than me, the downtrodden. Now, here's a white guy, and when you look at the folks who were in the anti-slavery movement, who put their life on the line, you look at the Underground Railroad and all those Quakers and things, they hid blacks out as they traveled in the Underground Railroad to Canada and to the North. They had something good in their heart. That's what we all need, but it's not there. We go to church, we say we love God, we say we're a Christian, 
but a Christian only for myself, that that would never run. It's it's not right, but anyway, as I said, things are much better. I've experienced things that I could not have experienced otherwise. I've been on five state governor appointed commission. I've served as mayor, been in politics. I've taught school 40 years. I've had a, a great life in terms of trying to change students. But when I first came to Stevens County, there was no program honoring blacks in Stevens County. This is the 70s, right? Right. This is 76, 77. Marie Cochran and I, Helen Clark, the Baker girl, and there's one more, I can't think of her name, we got together and went to Mr. Stevens, the principal, and asked him if we could... Uh, this is at the high school? The high school. We asked him, if, first of all, if we could get on the intercon in the morning at school and pick a famous plaque and announce what he had done. Well, he approved that. So we created the first little-known black history fact. Started in Tacoa with me and Marie and, and, and Baker and Clark. We started at Stephen County High School. You check it out, and you'll find that that was original because later on, McDonald Hamburger Place picked up that phrase, and then Tom John picked it up. But we were the first to use little-known black history fact for February at Stevens County High School. We did that for the, the whole month of February. And then later on, the newspaper came out, and I had students to interview for the newspaper on Little Black. And then I ordered this chart and put on the wall in the library that pointed out all the things, inventions and patents and things that blacks had done. So basically like a long timeline. Yeah, yeah. And anyway, we did that, and it did change something, but we we had to fight hard because the people in Stevens County resisted us having a black history program. And the days we had the program, the, the white kids would stay at home. The parents would come pick them up. So we fought that for a long time. And that, that's what I was going to ask you about, because I read an article where you talked about that a little bit. Yeah. And you talked about getting student involvement, and specifically with white students. Yeah. So but why do you think it was important for, for white students, and why do you think it was important for those white students if they did stay to learn those facts and to learn about those individuals? Well, I think it was important because a lot of white people see blacks for only one side. That's usually the criminal element being arrested, going to jail. And when you look at the way blacks have been treated by our courts in this country, you can understand why that is. When you look at a white guy doing a crime, black guy doing a crime, the white guy gets 10 times the sentence the white guy, the black guy gets 10 times, and that's still going on today. The cocaine and crack. The cocaine and crack. And when and when the cocaine crack thing that puts so many people in prison, three strikes you out, Without the elevator parole, it didn't change until whites started smoking pot. And they didn't want that on their record, so they started changing the pot laws to make it a misdemeanor for up to an ounce. So all of that happened. But but the thing about it is that, that blacks are still mistreated. The best program I know about today is an innocent program that's going on. I'm sure you've where they're getting these mm-hmm. folks. So far, they've gotten 500 and some people out of jail. Maybe more than that, I lost track. In that program, that were not guilty, but were given life for the death penalty, right. and uh, and that that's a great program which I support through the uh, Southern Property Law Center with donation each month, and hoping that things will keep changing. And I mean, th- there was just a thing on 
John Oliver's last week tonight talking about, you know, wrongful convictions in the appeals process <laughs> and how even in the fact if you were innocent and you've been convicted, but you're innocent, the appeals process almost, took so denies, long. Yeah, and it almost denies you even yeah. being able to get out. Right, right. And they, all this thing that comes about, you have a right to an attorney. They're going to point your attorney don't have time for you, the public defender. And then on the appeals, you may not get an attorney. Right. You may not even get one. So that, that's what's so sad about that. But we had great people at, at the Black History Program at Stephen Gunn. We had a, a Thomas Dodge. We had the CEO of DeKalb County. What's his name? Thur- uh, Thurman, CEO of DeKalb County. He's in Athens then. We had the Mohawk Lee Club. Monica Kaufman from, from Channel 2 in Atlanta. Andy Young, who was mayor of Atlanta. Just on and on, Pat Swilling, uh, the, the football Pat Swilling, player. okay. You're yeah. talking about language in the Mormon yeah. Saints there. Yeah, Pat Swilling. <laughs> uh, Lena Wheeler, who also played football. A lot, of, a lot of important names that we had. And after about 10 years, things began to change. And I had a program at the high school. I had two programs that changed things. One of the programs, I did food from around the world. We we cook food from representing the whole earth and down on the floor of the gym had folks to come by and sample. And uh, the other program that I did involved a lot of white students also we call Peacekeepers and Dreamers, where we took quotes from important people who wanted peace in the world and we allowed the student to become that person and speak the quote on the floor. That's a great program. And that really changed. Then, in my black history program, I only had one black, one white student to join. In fact, I didn't bring my phone in here. His name is Joe Powell. I see him on, the, on Facebook all the time. I think he's a minister now, but Joe, he's the only white that joined my black history club. And they fought the black history club so much until the principal got together and said, we need to do something else to get whites involved. So we formed the Outreach Club, yeah. opposite the Black History Club. And that went on for about 10 years with the Outreach Club being mostly made up of white, Black History Club being made up mostly of blacks. And I'm in charge of both of them. So that went on until the early 90s. And about 90, before I got ready to retire, I started working on them to merge those two groups and form the Unity Club which we did in 19, the year I retired, 1996-97. We did away with the Unity Club and the Black History Club, I mean the, the Black History Club and, and the Irish Club, and formed the Unity Club. And they functioned for a while, and I don't know what happened, but they're not functioning too much now. But, but that was a goal, and it did change attitudes at Stevens County in the community. So, so you, you talk about changing attitudes. Do you, do you see history as an important tool for individual growth, individual reflection, and the changing of attitudes towards a better society? Yes, I do. And i tell you an example of that because, you know, there are people who have an attitude that all blacks are the same, all whites are the same, which is totally false and wrong. But what happened is that many whites have had experiences with blacks that have changed their attitude taught that person how they look at them and the fact that that they look at them from a different point of view with respect. You know, I served as the uh, 
chaplain for the Georgia Mountain RDC in Gainesville mm-hmm. for 25 years. And I went all over the 13 counties in the ninth district. That was our district. Forsyth County, Lumpkin County, all Dawsonville, where there are no blacks hardly. And I, I wrote my editorials, and I've got some of them, a lot of them in my book. I was going to publish it and never did, but anyway. I wrote those editorials with the idea of changing people's mind using the Bible as my background. I think it worked because when I got ready to leave the Georgia Mountain Boyd three years ago, they begged me to stay on, but I was tired of driving, getting old, didn't need to be driving in the mountains. So anyway, I think that I changed a lot of people's mind in the Georgia Mountain and it brought more respect to what blacks had done. And I didn't do it in sense to, didn't in a way to try to criticize white for what they had done, their attitude. I did it from a standpoint of trying to get them to change and see a different view. And it worked. It's education. And yeah. it's, it's, what yeah. Lo, it's what Lillian Smith talks yeah. about. One yeah. of the metaphors that she has throughout all of her work is building bridges. Yeah. From person to person mm-hmm. to person. And until you build the bridges, you don't move anywhere. I'm trying to think of what was that, what's the, the book that she wrote? Uh, Killers of the Dream? Yeah, that's it. I I don't know if I've got I've got so much stuff I doubt, but I remember reading it. Uh, and it was and it was part of the movement. It was republished in '61 as yeah. part of the movement mm-hmm. or for yeah. for the movement. Now this you said uh, the uh, at Piedmont College there's a center named for her, and this is the system you're working on. The- right. So so I'm the director of the Lillian Smith Center, mm-hmm. and it's. It's an artist retreat is what started off as, and we're doing programming with educators and different things like that and things like this, interviewing you for the podcast, and just educating and getting information out to people and carrying on her legacy. So the, the center is actually up in Clayton, which is the camp where she lived, where she ran the Laurel Falls Camp for Girls for 20-something years uh-huh. after she took it over from her parents, where she wrote Killers of the Dream partly, you know, where she died in 66. So it's, it's her legacy, too, which, which leads me to the last question. And it's this, you know, why is it important for students in Northeast Georgia and everywhere, but specifically, I would say, in Northeast Georgia, to know about people like Lillian Smith, to know about people like you, to know about people like Marie, and even somebody like Mary Hambage, these individuals who were here who did work for social justice and for civil rights and for change? That's, that's a great question, and I think it's important because uh, I've written my book, but I haven't published it. But in my book, at the end, I listed probably eight or ten white citizens of Tacoa that had accepted me as a human being, Ben Cheek Jr., Ben Cheek III, uh, Ed Gilmer from Tugelo Guys Company. These are people that brought me in, accepted me as a person, and didn't see me as being black. I think it's important for people to know that history, that you had these people in the community that were working toward one society and one group and all people being treated, even though a lot of them were working behind the scenes. And, you know, because business-wise, it can ruin your business, but yet still behind the scenes, they were still working and treating people as human beings regardless of what society was thinking, even when all this was going on. So it's important for us to know our history, not only know it, but experience it, and to look at 
at, at what Jesus taught, that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, that we're, we're one. I think that's the thing we can get over. But we have people who, they want to use religion for their own benefit and not for the benefit of society or the world. And that's what hurts. But if we can get to the place where we are teaching history, and that's another thing, you know, you history teacher, you know, the American books on blacks and Hispanics were just outrageous in terms of what they covered. Yeah, I was reading, I've been reading the book, um, I forgot, Elizabeth Gillespie McRae, um, forgot the name of the book, but it's about white women's resistance to social change. And mm-hmm. one of the chapters deals with education and talking about, I think, of one of the books in Mississippi. And it was basically like a student could, could go to school from K through 12 and not encounter one African-American individual in, or, mm-hmm. or in, in the learning. Right. And, and they talked about, she talked about an instance with a, with a kid who was walking down the street in Mississippi. There was a black girl who went across the street and he punched her in the face. Mm-hmm. And basically they asked, you know, why did you do it? And part, of, and part of the kind of discussion was that he never encountered, maybe in his personal life, apart from maybe a domestic or something, or in his education, mm-hmm. a black individual who he respected as a human, right? Mm-hmm. Who led to this? You know, uh, when I was at Georgia getting my master's, I ran into a Catholic nun. Her name was Sister Rose, and she's from St. Paul, Minnesota. And I had never been to a Catholic church. <laughs> well, she befriended me and took me to a church, and when they had the little snacks and stuff, she'd take me there. But anyway, we uh, we kept a relationship for 25 years, and uh, we wrote each other, we sent cards, sent Christmas cards at Christmas time, and I was hoping someday to see her again, but anyway, she passed away, and her sister, roommate, got all the letters and the pictures and all the stuff I'd sent her over 25 years and mailed them back to me. Now, if that wasn't something, all the letters and things that I had wrote to Sister Rose, the picture of my wife and our kids when they were born and everything, she gathered those up and mailed them back to me. That was some experience. But I've always said this, is that I went to school with people from China, Africa, Asia, England, and the more I came in contact with foreigners, the better I enhanced my education. I wanted to meet more people to learn about their cultures and things to enhance my education, but some people, oh, you shouldn't be mixing, you know, that type thing, but anyway, that's the experience we need to get to the American people is we need to educate them as to what is going on and how that's going to help the entire country. Not this thing of, I'm a conservative, I'm a liberal, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, that type thing, which leads to dividers. Yeah, and it gets it gets back to things, like I said, Lillian Smith said. There's my favorite, my favorite quote from her comes from The Journey, where she, I'm just going to paraphrase it, she talks about going on a journey whether it's across the world or down Main Street, and the beliefs, the giants and pygmies of belief that follow us. We take all these things with us. And there's another quote she says when she was writing a letter to an English teacher that she says, you know, one has to be open to learning too. And that's kind of my key. How do we get somebody open to learning? Well, what I remember too about Lillian Smith and Ralph McGill on the Atlanta paper is they caught a lot of flack mm-hmm. for their attitudes and what they wrote and what they believed. And technically, it, it reminded me very much of uh, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center. What's the guy they just fired? Uh, he was threatened. They, they, they wanted to kill him yeah. several times. And I felt the same about Lillian Smith and uh, Ralph McGill. 
with the paper because of what they wrote. Their life was in danger, but somehow they were able to to smooth and, and to get by without that type tragedy. I mean, there's a lot more we could talk about. Anything you'd like to leave us with? Well, you said you wanted me to tell you about uh, my incident with the Georgia Highway Patrol. Right. You Somebody else who's spoken with you told me that there was an incident with you with the Georgia Highway Patrol, and you said it's over here in Stevens County, I guess when you were in high yeah, school, uh, possibly? Yeah, I was a senior in high school, just two months from graduation. And one night, a group of us went to Livonia, two cars on the way back from Livonia. The other car, car number B, passed me on Highway 17, was speeding. I was not speeding. Passed me, and on up the road, the highway patrolman stopped him for speeding. I had a friend in my car, and he lived between Eastern Ollie and Tacoa, so I went to take him home, and then I lived on Diagonal Street, which is down off Broad Street. And somehow, the uh, Georgia State Patrol came to Tacoa to look for me. They said I was trying to evade being arrested, which I was not. Anyway, and I go to Friendship Baptist Church, and just as I came down the hill from Friendship Baptist Church, he came up behind me, turned his blue light on. I stopped and rolled my window down and turned my head this way. He took a five-cell flashlight, didn't speak to me. Well, he did, too. He called me a nigger, something like that. He busted my head open without saying a word. In fact, I still got the scar that night where he hit me. Blood just gushed out everywhere. I can still taste it sometimes. And uh, he arrested me. He charged me with speeding, eluding officer, resisting arrest, DUI. Took me to the hospitals, had my head sewed up, then threw me in jail for a night. That was in the spring of 1958. And that was my encounter with the Georgia State Patrol. I lost my driver's license. Went ahead and graduated valedictorian of my class. I late in my life wanted to look him up and ask him why, but I didn't. I guess he's old then. I guess he's dead now, but I never did. But I did get my license back and got to go to college and finish, got to have a career. So it didn't it didn't hurt me. It hurt me physically, but anyway, with the especially with the, the trumped up charges, none of them were true. Uh, I didn't drink. I wasn't drinking that night. I wasn't resisting arrest. I wasn't trying to elude an officer, and I was not speeding. None of those charges were true. But anyway, I had to face the consequences of that. Yeah, that's a history that we need to know. So when you see, when you see people being uh, shot by law enforcement officers, I understand that I could have been shot that night just as easily as he hit me with the flashlight. He could have shot. Nothing would have been done in 1958. That's that's the sad part. And it looked like to me today, the police would be given sensitivity training. They're trying to change now where they're given mental health training. All that should be done so that we'll have a better law enforcement, better relationship with society, and stop treating, mistreating people. That's what we should do. Thank you for taking the time and speaking with me today. I am very happy to do it, and thank you for for inviting me, and I wish you much success in in your work with the Lillian Smith Institute, and hopefully what you're doing will enhance and help change the world, make it a better world for people to live in, hopefully. That's what history is all about. And I said history is my favorite subject, and really, only I only respect one book other than history books, and that's the Holy Bible, 
over the history book because history is fascinating. I mean, it's just... I agree. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.